You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with host Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Hello, and welcome to episode 335 of Dots, Lines, and Destinations. I am Stephen Seagraves, joined today by Seth Miller. Hey, Seth. How you doing? I'm I'm all right. I'm not woodworking, so I mean, better than you, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> or, is that, or is that worse than you? I would argue that that's worse <laughs> if you don't get to woodwork, and I do. I think that that's it's a glorious part of my day. Except not today. I, today was gardening instead. Oh, oh, what are you what are you doing? What are you doing? In the it's garden? finally warm enough that you know we don't have a risk of freeze, so we got the tomatoes in and peppers, uh, some bell peppers and hot peppers. So we're. Uh, expanding we it's interestingly uh the herbs we've planted like we got some sage and rosemary and parsley stuff like that it's like super super happy to be here and doesn't die in the winter even like covered in snow for three months so that we, we have really nice and, and like taking over the mint like oh, mint uh, is always mince, a mince a week, get it. yeah exactly uh, <laughs> but we got a big jug of mint tea right now and still half a flower uh raised bed filled with it so just it's amazing how quick it grows and like yeah all, like one morning you wake up and it's like oh i got a lot of mint yeah uh, yeah it's like <laughs> it's like squeezing through the gaps in the wood in the raised beds and growing outside <laughs> now it's great uh, we, we have oregano and thyme that we plant. So we have, nice. we have a bunch of roses and we planted oregano and thyme because we were told that they help fight off aphids naturally, mm. which we didn't know. And then we were really surprised. We didn't think they'd make it through the winter, but covered in about a foot and a half of snow, they made it and nice. came back strong. Uh, so yeah, one of the, we have, um, I'll say wild. It's not really wild, but we have like a flagstone patio and, when we bought the place, when we were first looking at it, there's thyme growing between the stones, oh. like all over, like, right. And it's like, it's like everywhere in between. It's that and dandelions, of course, um, because dandelions are everywhere. But as we were, I still remember as we were looking at this place, our broker was just an awesome woman. And she's like, as we were walking outside and looking around, she's like, Ooh, there's thyme everywhere here. This is gorgeous. And then bent down and took a handful of it and stuffed it in her purse. And we were like, what? And she's like, Oh, I'm making beef bourgogne tonight. This will be delicious. <laughs> I thought you were going to say she was going to make starts, like she's going yeah. <laughs> to transplant it. No, well, I mean, tomato, tomato at that point, right? Like whatever it was, it was, it was just hysterical. She just took a giant handful of it. Yeah, you know, it's edible. Well, I mean, we bought the place, so I guess that's okay. Um, and there's still plenty left. It's it's everywhere. It's amazing. Yeah, but, yeah. But that has nothing to do with airplanes. It doesn't. And uh, you want to follow up on uh, LaGuardia? I mean, you, yeah. you finally flew out of it. I flew out. And so, right, last week when we talked about this with you and Jason, uh, you guys were saying how amazing it was. And, and I, I honestly... Honestly, I kind of didn't believe you, and I flew out of it, and I kind of believe you. Does it? It doesn't. Uh, doesn't feel like Laguardia. Like you do not feel like you were in the Laguardia of old, uh, except for the part where my gate, my gate was actually one of the old gates because I was on an American flight out of the old section. So eventually, I had to get down there. But you know, just like the contrast between the super high ceilings of the new space and the low space and the old ones. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a, like an ATC low SIGs joke in there to be made. It was, it was incredible sort of just to see. And because I was in the new space and then went back and felt the old one again, I can tell how the new one is going to be, how nice it's going to be. The, the water feature thing I could take or leave. Yeah. I'm the same. Yeah. Um, it was, I guess, kind of neat, but like the part where they're using knockoff remakes of classic songs, I'm assuming for licensing reasons to try to like make it a tourism attraction of like pitching New York City as a place to be when most of the people seeing it are leaving New York, not arriving mm -hmm. was weird to me. Yeah. Um, but just the architecture, the aesthetics, the, the space, 
really, really nice. And when they finally, you know, are back to normal volumes of traffic and start opening up some of the restaurants and stuff again, I think it's going to be pretty incredible. And here's a question for you. I mean, to me, it looks like it can handle the traffic, right, of more people. Look, I think LaGuardia of old, the main terminal's problem before was it really struggled to handle all of the people that were stuffed into those piers. Well, those gate hold rooms were built for planes that were like, you know, 100, 110 people. And now the airlines are flying 180. Yeah. A pop. Like, and I mean, there's also just the general airport design challenge of like airports don't build hold areas, gate areas for 100% of the passengers to have a seat because yeah. they know not everybody's going to sit down, not everyone's full, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so the target is usually, I think, in like the 50 to 70% range. Mm-hmm. But even still, right, you got seating for 60, that means, and 180 people potentially on a flight. It just, it was brutal. And then you get, especially when you get down to sort of the end of one of the piers where it's like three or four gates clumped together mm-hmm. and it was a disaster. Yeah. I mean, so. those, those are my memories of LaGuardia are the United Gates where it was four gates at the end of the hallway yeah. and everyone, you know, all the early boarding process was just a cluster because everyone's just lined up and standing yeah. in the middle of the hallway. And yeah, I mean, the, it's, Air, Can- the Air Canada Pier was no better and they did the nice bit of having a customer service desk right in the middle. So oh, perfect. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the high ceilings, I, I wonder how long it's going to take for us to forget old LaGuardia once the AA side, those those gates are gone. I'd like to think I never will, just, you know, as a trauma, PTSD <laughs> sort of thing. But, yeah, it is nice, though. Uh, and we should also note that this week, because they have those sort of uh, the sort of pedestrian bridges from the head house out to the gate areas that cross over a taxiway, mm-hmm. this week, the first plane finally taxied under. I saw photos of that, the Southwest Airlines flight. Yeah. Yep. It's pretty – I mean, that's pretty cool, right? I mean – It is. I, to stand I, above. Know, I, I, I definitely you – know, I did, I stood on the bridge, that sort of overpass bridge or one of them for a little while. Just I got I had to get to the airport early because I was working and trying to not bother other passengers. So we went to areas that were very quiet where I could find them. And um, that was an area where the Wi-Fi worked very nicely and it was relatively isolated. Um, and yeah, but I mean, obviously I didn't see any planes go under, but the views from up there and whatnot are spectacular. So yeah, yeah. I'm hoping that really helps with some of the, just some of the taxi times. Cause that's what been one of the big problems that LaGuardia is, you know, getting stuck in an alleyway waiting either, either for a plane to come out so you can go in or waiting to go out because there's a line of planes to go past where you're. you're yeah. Right? That, that's theoretically, it's supposed to help that I'm, I'm a little skeptical how much of the delays are tied to that versus, you know, very compressed airspace yeah. and high volume of total traffic. Yeah. But we'll see. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm glad to hear your experience was good. What do you think about the elevation changes? You know, we talked about a little bit about that with, with Jason, right? Going up escalators and yeah. escalator, down escalators. What, what do you think? I agree that the escalators are too narrow, um, which is one of the objections one of you guys raised. Yeah, um, yeah. And I mean, obviously, like getting out to the old gates was... I mean, I could have been in the Bronx by the time I was, I was so turned around. I had no idea what was going on. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's mildly annoying. Um, I'm also of the opinion that escalators should generally move faster than they do in the United States. So <laughs> um, that's possibly because I've been to Kiev, Ukraine, and escalators there are like turned up to 11. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, at least in their, in their metro system. They're, some of their metro stations are super deep because they basically – the city's on a hill and they built the metro line flat. Oh, I guess so, so. Like, yeah. like, so the riverfront station is basically the lowest point, and everything else goes down to that, even if you're, you know, 200 feet up on the side of a hill on the, in the mountain or whatever. So those stations are just super deep, and the escalators move very quickly to accommodate that. Um, I can under- I understand why they don't do that in the United States, because someone would sue them, but it's, uh, I would, I would like something a little faster. But other than that, you know, 
it's tough because you know with bags and whatnot, you know, navigating that is a little annoying. But yeah, I think that's end of the day, be, I think it'll be okay. I think that's the challenge, right? Like, like I think Foz's objection to Laguardia, the new Laguardia, is he could have been from the you know taxi to the plane in ten minutes max um, with security and everything, and that's that's not going to happen in New Laguardia. You, you could no. run and maybe make it that fast, but I doubt it. Yeah, so. and I mean, we'll have also, you know, they built it with like 16 security checkpoints or something stupid like that. Um, it's almost like the JFK T5 when mm-hmm. they built it. They put all these security checkpoints in, and there's literally never been a day where they've all been open, yeah. as far as I know. Yeah. So, again, like, good to have, I guess, the redundancy. And it's got, like, right, it's got the fancy automated bin system um, and all those fancy things. Do, so you think that really, do you really think that speeds things up? Yes, because I definitely got my stuff in the bins and moved through the checkpoint ahead of the person who actually checked their ID ahead of me. Yeah, I, I think I think so it, it worked. It was faster for me. Was it faster for the overall process? I mean, I guess so because I made it through faster, right? Like, I think it's. I think it depends on how well it's being communicated. What's going on, right? Like, I, well, part of that is I didn't wait for anybody to tell me what to do. I just walked to an yeah, office yeah. and used it because I've been there before. That's that's the problem with like at Newark where they do this, right? People come through and they have no idea what they're doing and they hold up the entire line and i've had to like say, say to people no no you just go up to that one that's open and put your stuff in the bin and then take another bin from underneath and put your other stuff in there yeah. and push it forward and then at, at newark they're like going counter like the the agents are actually ordering the bins before like they'll hold you at the bins and i'm like well that defeats the purpose like the whole point of this is so that it's automated like why are you telling me not to put yeah. my bin in if you know, you're not yeah, ready for weird. it. Um, I think it's just yeah. because they're overwhelmed. But yeah, and right. I mean, all of these things. I feel like there's a you know, we've, you could argue any of the security things when people haven't traveled and done it that way cause problems, and over time they learn, and then TSA or the airport or someone else goes and changes the rules. So people will learn. There, you know, it takes a little bit of time, but people will figure it out eventually. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. You have some flights on Breeze. Coming up in the near future, yeah. Um, and they've announced their they've got their route map out and their their product features, like what they're going to offer. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sixteen cities, mm-hmm. uh, thirty nine different routes over the first three months. So they're going to be at thirteen airplanes. There's two or three planes to start, but they're going to be at thirteen planes by mid July, I think, or late July. Um, and they're they're launching service this week. They're launching service Thursday prior to Memorial Day, which is the date of this episode. So uh, by the time this episode comes out on the regular feed, uh, the inaugural plane will probably be in the air, or pushing back at least. Oh wow! Uh, it's it's an aggressive route map. I mean, there, there's they're taking the knowledge that Dave uh, Neilman, the founder, has both from JetBlue and Azul and what he knows about the E-190 and very much using that to his advantage financially in terms of very low lease cost rates, but also trying to make sure that trip costs are stupidly low for the operations. And part of that is sub-two-hour flights. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's something about what happens when the E-90s get on longer stage lengths where just the cost, and the, I don't know if it's fuel or whatever else, but the cost goes up. And so like disproportionately to what they can sort of charge for airfares. And so they're going for a ton of short routes. I did, I looked it up. The, the average flight path, uh, route, uh, distance is 605 miles, I think, hmm. which is super short. Yeah. six oh six oh four across the 39 routes. But, and of that, like 23 of the 39 are shorter than that. Only 13 are longer. Wow. So it's, wow. yeah. Or 16 are longer. I can do math. Really? I can. Um, right. So it's, it is really um, a focus on like this 60 to 90 minute flight time, you know, which is, you know, becomes 80 to 120 minute block times and bypassing connections. So, you know, Charleston to Louisville, that's probably a leisure market. Um, Tampa to Huntsville, Alabama, 
maybe Charleston to New Orleans is a dining market. I don't, I mean, right? Like great food at both ends, but I don't know how much of that. Or yeah. like Norfolk is going to be a base. Richmond is going to have a bunch of flights. Uh, San Antonio to, uh, Bentonville, Arkansas and Tulsa and Oklahoma City. There's some really interesting choices. Like there's not that many people going to visit the Alamo. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think so. Like some of this has to be a little bit based on trying to attract some business travelers, but also they're still doing sort of four day a week service. They're going to basically shut down on Wednesdays and Saturdays, hmm. which is only two. I think Sundays are pretty late also. Um, or Monday. Anyway, um, or five days are useful. Whatever it is, like they're, they're not, fl- I think it's, they're not flying at all on Wednesdays and only like five or six flights on Saturdays. So is that how's that going to work? I mean, you're they're just not going to like everyone just takes the day off. Like their their counters are closed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, you think about crew, like cabin crew and whatnot. They're paid by hours worked, right? So block time hours. So that's fine. Um, and then yeah, you or even if you have full time employees, which I mean they won't. It's all very limited hours at any of the counters, anyways, or most of the stations. So Tampa, Charleston. Norfolk and New Orleans are going to be the main bases. But, you know, so those maybe as they start to ramp up and get to sort of full levels of flights, they'll have full-time employees because that's the number of hours of coverage they need. But most of the places, it'll be two or three flights come in and go out. And hmm. you get the, you know, the four hours of coverage you need to handle that. And then those people go home. Hmm. So there there are some really interesting things about the staffing, right? This is they wanted to hire all college kids and give them like pay for their online college at a Utah university, but then have them be based at the hubs and get like a stipend and whatever it was. There were some questions about how well that would work, but they would all like when they graduated college, they would no longer be flight attendants. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's a little weird. That's they backed off on that a little bit, but it's still, I think we maybe talked about this last week, but it's like a four hour contract. Or sorry, excuse me, a four year contract. Mm-hmm. So they might still not have a job after four years. Um, pilot pay rates aren't great to start. I want to say that a uh, first officer uh, first year is like $43,000. <laughs> So that doesn't seem like a lot to me. Yeah, no, um, that's not great. Yeah. What, um, um, like, I mean, Norfolk, I kind of get, uh, actually just, there's not a lot of nonstop traffic out of Norfolk. Yeah. I um, mean, you have to connect and the connections are kind of crappy, honestly. Right. But I could see like Charleston and Norfolk or, uh, even New Orleans and Norfolk or Tampa and Norfolk are all like those, are, there's military bases and all those things. Yeah. I could yeah, see yeah. a little, I mean, they're not going to get GSA contracts, Certainly not the first year with minimal service, um, but I could see some of that stuff starting to come together. People, people visiting family, people, yeah, you know, going trying to go on, go on a vacation that's quick and affordable, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, totally. Or I mean, if the timing works out, contractors working at the businesses mm-hmm. um, could make some connections there too. Yeah, uh, they're gonna have a loyalty program to start. Really, breeze points, baby. Breeze points. You get two percent uh, earning on base airfare. Four percent if you buy up to, and their fares are called nice, nicer, and nicest. Um, are their fare families? So nice is a seat on the plane. Um, nicer gets you extra leg room and uh, snack and a drink and uh, check bag and carry on bag. Nice doesn't even get your carry on bag; it gets you a personal item. Um, and then nicest will only exist on the two twenties, and it'll be the two twenties when those show up, and that'll be a two two. Uh, seating instead of two three. So basically, like it seems like a domestic like a, first like class. First class, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, what's interesting about that is they talked about like potentially doing beds for long haul service. I don't think that's actually going to happen. Do you think they're going to do long haul service? I mean, it, I, I guess they're going to long haul. I think they're going to you know of transcons probably is what they're thinking, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting to me because. They're, they have to really see what this is, how successful this is all going to be. Like, who's going to fly them, right? Like, that's the, really the question. And how many, how many seats they're going to sell, and is it viable for them to, to do this? Like, are people really going to fly Pittsburgh to Providence, Rhode Island? 
Like, is that really a thing um, for $85 round trip? I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, it's great that they have a loyalty program. You're flying them. Uh, you're fl- doing Charleston, right? You're flying one of the Charleston. Yeah, I'm going to be on the inaugural on Thursday. So, Tampa to Charleston. I'm actually flying all the way through to uh, – conti- the second flight will be Charleston to Bradley, Hartford. Um, so, I'll take that and and then drive home from there. Oh, wow. You excited? Yeah. I mean, listen, inaugurals are always fun. This has been a long – you know, I actually had a, a sort of back and forth with someone on Twitter about this the other day. Like, who cares about inaugurals? And listen, it's just another flight. But also, like – it's a celebration of years of hard work put in by a lot of people. And sometimes it is just another flight and whatever. And oftentimes though, it is really exciting, mm-hmm. right? People are, people are happy. People are having fun. It's a reason to go out and celebrate. And so I don't mind showing up for a party. Yeah. Yeah. When do they, when do they get their two twenties? Uh, starting later this year, I think October ish. Okay. Okay. That'd be fun too. I mean, just to be able to get, you know, some, some different aircraft and different lines in there. It'd be fun. Yeah. A lot of good lines. None of them really close enough to me, so that's unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, it's really the southeastern side. I mean, there's some stuff in the northeast, but it's east and south. I mean, Providence and Hartford aren't really close. Turns out Hartford's like a three and a half hour drive for me, which is further than I thought. Um, (laughs) But I'm doing it. Um, Also, one way rental cars are stupid. I got to return it in Manchester, which is like 45 minutes away. (laughs) Friday morning on my way to Memorial Day weekend. So that'll Um, be that'll be fun. (laughs) Yeah, not an ideal situation just to the overall structure, but I mean, they this they stopped. They finished their test flights over a month ago so it's been sort of a slog getting this done through the faa and getting everything ready yeah 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 um and they were ready to go and ready to go and i think always ready to start flights this weekend and the real challenge is just that they couldn't uh they had to wait until they were allowed to sell them yep yeah makes sense so yeah um so let's talk let's talk a little bit about european travel and some of the, the news that's come out um Back. Yeah. So, I mean, Europe has kind of decided that they're going to allow vaccinated U.S. passengers uh, to, to travel to Europe. Like, the EU has suggested that vaccinated passengers are okay, but each country still has to approve how it wants to let it happen. Yeah. Like, the, there's right? been a tentative approval at the EU level. Yeah. So, the U.S. airlines, you know, I think Scott Kirby, the CEO of United, made a point the other day of, like, you know, if this doesn't have it hasn't happened yet, and we're basically already to Memorial Day, so it's kind of going to be a lot another lost summer, mm. and then we'll have to see with a few countries opening up, right? Like United added Athens and Croatia, and then increased capacity on those markets. Last week we talked about. Um, there's now uh, Barcelona and Madrid are getting increased traffic. Spain has announced that it's going to allow vaccinated passengers. Italy has as well. So you got United adding update or increasing frequencies to Spain this summer and to. Italy, American is increasing to Italy. I think Italy, though, is requiring testing pre-departure, even if you're vaccinated. Interesting. This is something Italy had, I think, this is something Italy had back in the day, like they had, and I think it was just with Delta, you could do a a PCR test 72 hours out, and then an antigen test at the departure gate, which is rapid, and you get the results as you're boarding kind of thing, and then another antigen test as you arrived, and as long as all three were negative, you could skip the... Uh, quarantine. quarantine. Yeah. Is this but a... Italy was still limiting it to only like official travel reasons, and now they're opening it up to vacation or leisure travel with those same rules, I think. This is, we kind of talked about this with Jason, right? Yeah. On the previous show. I, I mean, the idea of testing, I mean, it sucks, right? Because doing three tests to travel somewhere isn't, I mean, unless you're just dead set on going to Italy, I don't, I, you know, I don't know. It's worth it. <laughs> as bad as that sounds. Yeah. I, it's, I, you know, it's, it's, 
I'm torn on that, right? Like, is it really that big a deal to get tested, especially an antigen test, which is like super easy? No, no, it's not. But it's still it's like an inconvenience, especially if you're doing it for you know your family. There's like and five you got to test on the way home. Yeah, and you got to test on the way home, so you got to figure all that out. Like, there's a lot of yeah. logistics involved with it. That I fair. That's where I'm kind of like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, any customer is eligible to fly on into Italy, but they still have to uh, do all the testing, even if uh, vaccinated. So right, and, like I'm going to. St. Martin next month, I'm still going to have to get tested even though I'm vaccinated. I'm going to figure out if they're still doing tests at the hospital here. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, if, I have to assume like at some point that's going to scale down. But um, so I may have to figure out how to get a pre-departure test. And then the return one they're doing at the at all the hotel, like the fancy resorts there or whatever, are doing it on property a couple of days a week. So I'm fine that. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, is it worth it? I don't think it's onerous. It's a little, you know, and right now I haven't had to pay for all of them yet. Yeah. Obviously I'll have to pay for my test coming home from St. Martin. Um, so that'll cost me a little, but, and it's just me, right? I'm not a family of four and I'm not testing three times and, and, and. So, you know, I, I, I understand, I add a, uh, Willie Walsh's new CEO and director general of IATA is great for quips and quotes. Um, he is certainly <laughs> not shy and he's, has expressed his concerns about the cost of the testing vis-a-vis family travel and things like that. And I get it. Um, you can't say no testing and you can't say, at least right now, I don't think, just because even with the vaccine, it's a little challenging to keep track of that and vaccinations right now. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm really interested to see, though, is honestly, like, I think the CEO of Emirates or Dubai Airports was basically saying, we fully expect that it will be um, vaccine passports required. You'll need digital proof of your vaccination. And it has to be like externally auditable and all those other things. And the U.S. has said they're not going to do that. Hmm. Right. There's not going to be the, the U.S. government has said we are not going to establish a federal database of who's vaccinated and authorize that. So maybe maybe the whatever digital providers will work with various states or other people who are ready to do it. Maybe um, there'll be exemptions made in some cases and you get stuck in a special long line. I don't know. But I'm I have concerns. Like, I mean, well, so what does that mean, though? Because well, does that mean that as an American citizen, potentially, if you're not in some database, you won't you won't be on the uh, vaccinated list? And therefore, not necessarily allowed entry. I mean, I would hope we could opt into that list. <laughs> well, so, so the the question is, who are the right? Who's the central authorization, and how is this data being collected? And can a you know can Seth the you know passenger? And actually, American Airlines has a deal with the, they use this app called Verify for some of their health check stuff. They're now that for a couple countries that require, you know, or that allow vaccination as an opt out from the quarantine. It's like El Salvador and the Bahamas, I think, maybe one other. Um, you can upload photos of your vaccination card and someone in the back end will look at the photos and validate them and give you a check mark in your profile. And then when you scan your QR code or whatever, you're considered okay. Good to go. Yeah. Yeah. So they, that's a version of the authorization, but that's only for those countries with that app with that airline, with American potentially, right? Like, I don't know if that would also work if BA also uses Verify would, you know, if you ended up on a, and obviously those destinations, it's less an issue, but, um, well, yeah, theoretically flies to, uh, to Nassau. So like, how, I don't just figure out how all those things interconnect and how many different places am I going to need to store my data? Like the whole idea that it's, there's a privacy issue and there's risk to my personal data and all those things. I get it, but I'd really much rather have one place that I control all of that than 14. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so here's my question, right? Like, so if you're going to Croatia, Croatia is saying, if you're vaccinated, you're good, but how are you just have to bring your vaccination card? Like, I assume so. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to do that either. Like it's, I mean, I guess, I mean, I guess that's better than nothing. 
Um, Are you afraid of losing it? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, not afraid of losing it necessarily. It's just like it's one extra thing to carry. I mean, I'm guessing people carry their yellow fever card and stuff with them, so it's not a huge deal. But it's no like, one carries the yellow fever card. Though. That's the thing, right? Like, so few people had to use it. That's why people are freaking out that there might be like paperwork that proves I'm vaccinated because no one knew that. People had been doing this for decades. Yeah, but like people, like you had to go into South Africa, right? From Brazil, you had to show it, right? Or how did you prove it? Yes. What I'm saying is- Those are the only people- Yeah, there's a very small number of people of the 6 billion who flew in 2019 or whatever it was. A very small number of them have a card like that, much less carry it, right? Mm -hmm. I never carried mine unless I knew I needed it on an itinerary. In fact, I had trouble finding it. Um, to, cause I got the doctor when I got my, my second dose to actually mark that card also. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd ripped my desk apart, um, ripped my office apart looking for it. And then of course it was right where it was supposed to be. But at the last minute, I was still hunting for mine because I hadn't used it in five years or something. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely better to have like this digital thing. And what's crazy is that if you went to like to get your vaccine, if you went to get it at like a hospital or, you know, a, a medical facility where you have an account, like they have a digital record of that. Um, so a friend of the show and I both here in Portland go to, to, to similar hospital, uh, the same hospital, and we both have a, a digital copy of our vaccination record in our account. Um yeah, like I assume my insurance company knows about it because they got billed for it. Yeah, yeah. So right, they still send me emails telling me to go to the wrong state to get a new vaccine. So, but maybe, maybe your ins- maybe you're not your insurance, but maybe the provider you went to, like, was it your doctor or? No, I did. The state of New Hampshire had a pretty nice facility actually set up the national operated by the National Guard for crowd control and the local fire departments for actually administering because they're all EMTs. Mm. I'm wondering. I'm wondering then maybe, you know, maybe if you took it to your doctor, right? And you said, here's my vaccination card. Can you what add this? What are they going to import it into? Well, I mean, you put it into like, your health records. Yeah. But I mean, that, I feel like there's an, health records are such unstructured data. I know. Well, Epic's, Epic's trying, man. Like, I mean, they are a Epic billion, that. they are a billion dollar company. <laughs> multi, multi. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I get it, but. And I, I will admit, like, when I had a question about one of my vaccines, they were able to look one of them up pretty quickly. Yeah. So um, I guess maybe, but like, I just, I'm skeptical. Yeah, I just, I, I want it to be in some central place where, I mean, one, I don't think this is going to be the last time there's a coronavirus in the world. Um, and two, uh, we, we just need, we need to have some kind of plan for how do we do this. This, yeah. this. Also, like, I, I would really much rather have someone else being, and I, maybe, and this is not everybody, I guess, but I would really rather have someone else who, like, I designate, keep track of all this data for me. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I'm good. I, I know I'm vaccinated. That's great. But like at some point I'm going to forget when I had my last tetanus shot. I know I'm going to forget when I had, you know, do I need a booster for something else? Like it's a lot of detail to keep track of and stuff that I don't necessarily, I'm not qualified for. Like why would I know if I need an MMR booster or a whatever? Yeah. Right. Like if they decide we need a booster on this, is it going to be one year or three years or whatever? And like, I want someone else to be able to say, Hey Seth, go take care of this because this is the last time you did it. Yeah. Yeah. There's value in that to me. So yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And it, more to the point, I think there's value in that societally to be able to say like, Hey, if you don't want to like risk another insanity of 2020, maybe we should try this again. Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's fascinating to me. I was actually talking to some people about potentially booking a ticket to Taiwan because apparently graphics cards and CPUs are, um, easily available there. Uh, so I was actually considering it's cheaper to book the ticket than pay the inflated rates for these cards here in the United States. So, uh, I was looking at it, but then, then, uh, Taiwan closed their borders again. Because they had yeah. an outbreak of like 10 or 12 people. Um, and they isolated all their pilots. I think they thought maybe it came back through pilots yeah, on the road. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, I, one, that terrifies me again with like the idea of traveling and getting stuck, stuck somewhere. Yeah. Um, just like the idea of, oh, now I'm in Taiwan for a month because 
you know, someone didn't, you know, yeah. cover their nose. Um, yeah, it's just, it's things like that. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, let's see. Max production increase. So Boeing's announced this, right? That they're going to increase the production on the Max? Uh, Reuters is reporting it. Boeing hasn't confirmed all mm. the details. So I think it's, there's, it's a step change or staged, you know, whatever increase. I think the, the idea of getting to 31 by March of next year. Boeing has confirmed, um, but they've gone now to suppliers and asked if they can all increase production rates to get back to be able to be a production of 42 by the end of the year. Wow. Month. Wow. Um, so still trailing Airbus on single aisle production. Also, Boeing has a ton of backlog that they still got to deliver. It'll be interesting to see, right? I mean, like there's there's planes parked everywhere still, um, not the least of which was a challenge because of the electrical issue, which is now being resolved and deliveries have started again. But it's... It's challenging. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so, the, the, you know, there's the, how many planes are actually needed? Who's ready to start growth again? And then, um, you know, which planes are they going to be? But, it, it, you know, obviously good for the industry if there's some rebound there um, and the numbers pick back up. Obviously, a lot of suppliers are struggling also. Um, so that'd be good news for a lot of those companies. Do you – I mean – do you think that as kind of COVID winds down a little bit in the United States, you know, things are getting better here, um, Boeing will pick up again with other production? I mean, I see that the 77, was it 9, uh, and 77X programs are, they seem to be doing still test flights and stuff. Um, but do you think they'll continue, uh, any of those, any of those, you know, types of programs, maybe new development on, say, NMA? Or do you think that's, it's all kind of still on pause? I think there's got to be some work happening mm-hmm. on sort of new aircraft types. And we'll talk a little bit about that in the bonus episode about supersonic stuff that's moving the other direction. But um, from a sort of regular plane perspective, it's it's always happening at some level. You know, I think you'd have to be a little crazy to announce a new aircraft like production type now, NMA or anything else, just because saying you have an idea of what the market's really going to be like. Um, we have some estimates on what the recovery is going to look like, but I, I would want another year at least under the belt to see if we really have contained this and we really have figured out what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, like it, India is a great example. China actually had a thousand fewer flights last week than it did the week before, mm-hmm. like, which isn't a ton, but it is. Uh, so, right. Like it wasn't expected to go back down, I think. Um, although maybe it was ho- slightly holiday related. I think there's an early May holiday that they deal with, but like it, there, there's just things like that that you're never quite entirely sure what the market is really doing and especially around business travel and yeah. long haul travel. Yeah. Uh, you know, long haul is, I, th- I think it's great for vacations, but the, a lot of that traffic is work related. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, we should talk a little bit about Newark. Uh, there's a couple of couple of news stories. Because uh, who doesn't love Newark? It, I mean, now that LaGuardia is there, I don't see a reason to ever fly back into Newark. But anyway, uh, so – Spirit and Newark slots. One, I didn't know Newark was still slot controlled. I thought we had talked about it not being. So it isn't. And that's what makes this so awkward. (laughs) Uh, If you will. Newark is not slot controlled. It is slot coordinated. So there's three types of sort of slot rules for airports. One level one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. Three is fully slot controlled. There's a number of operations permitted. Two is slot coordinated where it's sort of on the honor system. Okay. Uh, and when Newark went from level three back down to level two, there was the option for it to become a sort of free for all. But the FAA made very clear it expected that. Well, not that it expected. What it made clear is that if people started adding too many flights and delays got out of hand again, it would return to slot control back to level three. And if it did, if it did that, any flights that were not part of the coordinated pool 
would be immediately cut. Mm, okay. Right? Because it would go back to sort of uh, what's the status quo antebellum, uh, if you were. Yep. All right? The status quo before shit fell apart. And as a result of that, airlines were a little hesitant to start just adding flights willy-nilly because it takes time to build up routes, et cetera, et cetera. And if the FAA came back in and smacked them down, that would have all been for naught. It would have mm. been wasted energy, wasted money. Gotcha. Um, what's interesting, though, is that uh, Southwest Airlines picked up slots from the United Continental merger. The airlines, you know, at that time, United Continental had to divest in 28 or 36, some number of slots. Southwest picked them up. When Southwest decided to close its base at Newark in November 2019, it returned those slots to the FAA. Rather than reallocate them, the FAA said, thank you, and just remove them from the schedule. And it did it ostensibly, it said, to reduce delays. Huh. Um, its own modeling of what that meant is basically for the morning flights, like eight seconds or something like that, or no delay. Uh, for some of the afternoon flights, it was like one minute. And for the evening flights, it was four minutes. The average delay would go from 28 minutes down to 24, uh, which is just not that much. Mm-hmm. And... Spirit Airlines wanted to operate, but also recognized that if it added all these flights and then everything went back to level three, it had wasted all this time and money and petitioned the FAA to distribute the slots. And the FAA said, no, we're not going to do it. We're going to wait and we're going to, you know, assess more data, et cetera, et cetera. And Spirit sued them or appealed to uh, federal court saying you have to actually give them you have to put them back into play or come up with at least a better reason. It was arbitrary and capricious, I believe, is the uh, phrasing used in the lawsuit. <laughs> and, Sp- and Spirit won. The judge for the Circuit Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia held that uh, the overall decision to not reallocate those slots was, in fact, arbitrary and capricious and is not. And that's not permitted by uh, federal law. If the FAA wants to do it, it has to have a good reason. And one of the really interesting lines, it's a pretty short ruling, um, but one of the really interesting lines in the brief or in the the, uh, ruling doc is basically after evaluating the FAA's data that says, you know, we could save a grand total of an average one minute per flight against the average fair drop of 45% against Monopoly United routes. Because United has 70, like something like 60% of the slots, 65% of the slots, and in the peak departure hour, like 75%. So giving up, losing those, you know, half dozen or whatever slots late in the evening was actually went or pushed United from 72 to 75 or something like that. It It was significant there. And the idea that another airline could come in and help drop prices significantly was compelling to the court. And they basically wrote in the decision, you know, the FAA really needs to reconsider this. That was an order. And if the FAA still decides to not allocate these slots, it needs to come up with a really better, it needs to come up with a better explanation than we're going to save one minute on a handful of flights relative to letting passengers save 45% on airfare. <laughs> and they, they just point blank dropped that in there. It was like, damn. So what's the, what's the, what's the, what's the, I guess, overall, uh, takeaway from from this is spirit. Do you think these spirit come out ahead in the long run? Um, or- well, so they don't necessarily go to spirit, and they don't even necessarily get allocated. But mm. the FAA has to go back now and either allocate them and you know hold the regular you know put them out for whoever wants them and have the lottery or whatever they do and yeah, applications and whatnot. But the slots get reallocated, or it has to come up with a good reason for not doing that, and it has to actually you know a reason that be, that passes muster with the uh, the courts. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and part of that can be, they have what's a, the, a meet, uh, an all hands meeting essentially and talk about who's using which slots when and where. And, you know, listen guys, we need to drop 30 slots during the day, but then it wouldn't all come from one airline. It would be proportional usually. Hmm. Okay. So basically United would get screwed. So either way, United loses on this, which 
Okay. Uh, I can't imagine they're happy, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, but they don't have much of a re- they don't have much recourse here. Like, no, and I I can't imagine United was actually fine, like trying to lobby on the side of the FA, like, no, this is this is really better for customers. Um, mm-hmm. That the fares are going to be higher. That's cool. Yeah. Um, that'd be an awkward brief to file. I mean, they, they'll say it was around delays and whatnot, but anyone else would come back and say, ah, but you operate all the flights, so if there really are delays, isn't it your fault? <laughs> and yeah, good times. Well, well. Crazy. Um, yeah. But the new terminal's coming along. Yeah. And uh, who gets first dibs? Well, everybody thought JetBlue was going to be the first one in there. It now seems like United is going to take 20 of the 30, I think 33, 35-ish gates. Um, starting, I think it's supposed to open about a year from now. Um, maybe 10 or 11 months. Uh, early 22. And, or 2022. Uh, yeah. United's apparently going to take 20 gates for single aisle operations. And leave, I guess, leave all of its regional jet stuff back at Terminal C. Hmm. But I, I don't know. It's weird to me. I, I'm trying to figure out which flights go where, and like it always sucks when you have split terminal operations. I get that, but um, it's you know I, I honestly think it made the most sense when they kept the DC, Boston, Detroit, or not uh, not Detroit, Dallas, Atlanta, and and, and Chicago flights all in Terminal A when it was because those were very much uh, local traffic, mm-hmm. people flying without connections, O and D, whatever. Um, and so because there was no connections, you didn't need to worry about that. And they could be off in their own little world. And then they needed additional United or Continental at the time needed additional gates. And they were able to squeeze more regional jet gates into the banjo piers at Terminal A. And so they moved the regional jets over there and moved all the main line back over to C. Now they're going to move main line, some of this main line back over to, to Terminal 1, I think. It's not A anymore. Um, but, I mean, it already was – they already had the shuttle bus service. So I guess they just put that back. Yeah, the behind security shuttle bus. Behind thing. security shuttle bus, but I don't know, man. I just it, that's that's always been annoying, and I'm sure it will continue to be annoying. But yep. I'm just trying to figure out like how do you decide which flights you move over there, and is it right? Like it's if it's people connecting to your your long haul sort of flagship services to Europe and Asia and South America, you you kind of don't want the connections having to do that bus as a you know, right. You want to optimize the operation for as many people as possible, and so it gets super complex in a hurry. Um, I don't know. But there's not, you know, with six something like sixty eight gates in Terminal C apparently isn't enough for United all on its own. Or they're pushing, they're doing their best to squat on as many gates as they can to try to reduce competition access. So what is like? So what does that mean um, for? I mean, how many gates is that? You said it's how many? It's thirty something over there. Okay. And they've got twenty, and so I think JetBlue thinks they're going to get a bunch because right, JetBlue's growing at Newark like crazy. Yeah. Um, because of the American partnership and whatever else. Um, there and Spirit obviously thinks they want to grow some more, right? I mean, part of when Terminal One opens, the new whatever, like the A pier goes away, right? The A banjos. Yep. So, um, it's sort of a like for like in terms of total number of gates available. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that's going to work out real well. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, I'm thinking like Alaska too has said, hey, we want to be able to have you know the San Francisco yeah. flights, the LA flight, San Diego. Portland, Seattle, etc. Yeah, and that takes gates unless they do some creative shuffling of the schedule. So, and, and some of them will be uh, common use, right? If yeah. you know, they'll be they'll be shared gates, and that's fine. But um, they, they make that work now. I mean, Air Canada needs some gate space. They have they use the A A one banjo right now and have a nice lounge there. That's gonna have, not nice, but they have a lounge there. <laughs> um, it's gonna get need, need to get recreated at some point over in somewhere else. Uh, it's just, all of that adds up, and it's hard for me to see how United suddenly taking a bunch more gates is going to be good for anyone else. Certainly, yeah, and, and and I mean to be fair, right? Like they they're what what is the need? Because they can't necessarily 
They're not using any mainline there today. They're moving mainline back over there. And when it was like a regional, it was like where you went for regional flights and you just kind of had this understanding of what it was. So now you're putting mainline flights over there, which if you are doing connections, that's a lot more people to put on the bus to get them, to get them over to the main terminal. I, I just, I don't see the logic really. Um, I mean, it'll make it'll make Newark more of a pain in the ass to connect through. Honestly, if you don't, especially if you don't know that your flight is going into that terminal, right? And you're now having to connect over, and uh, yeah, it's just going to be a pain. I, I would not, I would not enjoy that. I will definitely be paying attention to. I mean, it's it's almost like flying uh, into O'Hare on an international flight coming in, and then not realizing that you have to take the train. Well, if it's running or a bus to the main, you know, to United side to go through security and stuff again. Like that's that's kind of a shock when, when you have to do that the first time. <laughs> I mean, you have to yeah. do it at Newark too a little bit, but um, if you come into B. But anyway, I'm just yeah, I, I don't and, see the and you taking up. I mean, I, I'm struggling to figure out how United really deserves more gates at Newark. Yeah, or need or needs more gates. I mean, unless they're trying to squat on them and force others out, which they have. But um, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anyway, yeah. I don't want to drag it out on this topic. It's it's kind of it's a little infuriating because I'm I'm with you. Like, does United really deserve? Why? Because it's their hub. Uh, it, I don't know. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. So, um, I th- I think that's a, a show. We're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, Hilton and Lufthansa and uh, the Vancouver picket line lockout lawsuit crap that's happening on the bonus show for Patreon subscribers as well as uh, some supersonic flight stuff. So uh, if you're not a Patreon subscriber and you'd like to be, uh, you can sign up um, or you can follow us on on Twitter at dotslines more dots more lines dot com. Uh, and we should say thank you to some new uh, Patreon supporters, Jason uh, Fancit and Marcus. Stillman, thank you for your support, and uh, yeah, happy travels. Take care.